Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Bibles, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 1, 21, or Matthew chapter 1, as we're going to be in that portion of Scripture in promise, providence, and purpose in the Christmas story. The promise is fulfilled. What is in a name? You ever ask that question? What's in a name? What do names mean? What do things mean? Have you ever done a genealogy check? Anyone ever done that? Try to find out who your ancestors are? Anyone ever went and done that? Okay, all right. Over the past 10 to 15 years or more, it's been a fad to sign up with one of those sites that can, you know, put down and you can find out who your ancestors were, who you come from. I mean, you can even do DNA tests and find out what part of the world you actually come from. And for many people, it's been a surprise. I know even just when I was young, I remember that we had a, a letter that came to our house when I was still living with my parents. And it was, uh, you can buy now the book of the Currington's. That's my last name. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. We can find out who we came from. Well, my parents never bought the book, but we ourselves have this one thing that's always been going on, is many people spell my name, mis- misspell my name, I should say, by putting two R's, Currington. Now, we say our name is Currington, but obviously people say Currington. Now, that's probably the correct spelling, because it's an English name, and like Barrington or Carrington, and those types of things, they double that, that constant there, but it's always been one of those things in our family, is our name Currington or is it Currington? And it's always been one of those battles. And one of the, uh, you know, the, your family always has these legends or these myths of, of your ancestors and things of that nature. And one of ours was, is that my grandmother was Irish. And, you know, the Irish and the English don't always get along. So she just dropped that R so she didn't have to, uh, uh, you know, be like she was English. And I don't know, think that, that may be part of the story. But we did find when my, my father and then passed away is my aunt, his sister, finally went back and did some genealogy, went back to the courthouses and actually went back to the census. And you can go back and find out. So we, she went back and she shared some pictures and she shared the census book where you can actually see your, you know, your ancestors actually sign things and things of that nature. And so we found out where our family was from. We're from that kind of south Mississippi, Tennessee type area. They were itinerant uh, farmers at those times. They traveled from field to field back in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s. And up until that day, what was surprising is that both of my grandparents signed their names with two R's on the census, on the official government census, C-U-R-R-I-N-G, and that was so interesting. And so we thought, wait a second, well then, how come we're all spelling it with one R? Who is wrong or who is right here? But as far back as you can go, it was two R's until eventually, when my father was born, he was the last of seven children, And when he was born, for some reason, whomever wrote that on the census, whether it was my grandmother or something else, put only one R on there. And from then on, the census shows one R. So if you ever do a Facebook check or something like that of Currington's, I don't know if you ever do that and see if you have any relatives, but you have Currington's, like Billy Currington, the country star. Uh, He's two R's. Well, but you think, are there any others that did it like us with one R? And there's quite a bit, surprisingly. So it's one of those things that you're surprised, how did we get this name? Wouldn't it be interesting to sometimes go back 
and just meets your ancestors, your, those who, who you came from. I don't know. What if they were a jerk? I don't I, you know. I'm not sure what I would do, but you know, you never know. But those are things that are kind of interesting. Many times, as I said before, it surprises people when they find out really where they came from or what their ancestors were. Well, imagine being in the time when Matthew wrote his gospel. Sometime around 55, 50 AD, about 20 years after Christ had died and rose again. And imagine being a Jew living far away from your homeland of Israel. You're not hearing news right on the spot. You know, there's, there's no Twitter, there's no Telegraph, there's none of those types of things. And you're there in the first century and you're hearing news come in from the homeland every once in a while very slowly. And your heart is yearning with Israel, even though you may be far away, and you're desiring and yearning for that reconciliation. All of your life, you have heard about the promises that a Messiah would come. For centuries, you and your nation have suffered under the cruel and harsh rule of foreign kings. You recall the words of your grandfathers and your fathers and other elders recounting all the wonderful stories and promises that were found in the Torah and the old scripture of the promises that God would come and rescue his children as he did once with Moses with Egypt. These yearnings are captured mournfully in the Christian hymn. And you don't have to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. O come, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem under your own and rescue them, the hymn writer would write. That captures that mournful feeling and desire. Let the Messiah come. Then one day, word comes to your village of a man who claimed to be the Messiah. Your heart skips with anticipation. Yet by the time that the word actually reaches you, you also find out that that man has been crucified. His disciples have spread across the world with a mission to tell everyone about this man who they say has now risen from the grave. Who is this Jesus, you might be asking? What did he do? What did he say? Where is he now? Is he the long-awaited Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel? Well, Matthew attempts to answer these questions. He begins his testimony in the Gospel of Matthew with these words in chapter 1, verse 1. It's here on the monitor as well as in your Bible, where Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So with prayer, Father, we come before you and we ask for you to open up our minds and hearts to receive that which we know uh, so well. Story, these stories are so familiar. But Father, let us see them anew. Father, be with us as I speak. Let me speak words that are edifying, words that are encouraging. Lord, work within our heart. Keep disturbances to the minimum. And Lord, let us respond to your Holy Spirit work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the Gospel of Matthew was primarily written to Jewish unbelievers, not to the disciples and believers of Christ, but mainly to Jewish unbelievers to declare that Jesus is the Messiah and the rightful heir of the throne of David. Matthew opens his gospel by recording the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to, mean the, to be the Messiah through the importance of his name, his title, and his lineage. So who is Jesus? Well, as we look through that passage, his name is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We see first that the name Jesus means to rescue or deliver. In scripture it is defined as he who will save. 
This is seen in Matthew chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, in verse 20 and 21. For in this passage, Joseph is commanded by the angel to embrace Mary as his wife, even though she is pregnant. Where he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, next, Matthew refers to Jesus as Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' actual last name. But it's a title that meant anointed one. The psalmist uses the phrase to refer to King David, while the prophet Daniel refers to an anointed one who will be a prince of Israel, but will be cut off. Scripture also uses it to describe men that were given special responsibilities to serve the purposes of God, even uh, foreign Gentile kings. The apostle John uses this to refer to Jesus in his first letter, 1 John. Christ was the title for the Messiah, the anointed one who would come to rescue and deliver God's children. Matthew then goes on to say, not only is he Jesus, the one who will save or rescue his people, and not only is he the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, the one, the promise, the one that we've been looking for, but he also says that Jesus is the son of David. Now, this was not a title that you would throw around very easily. David had many sons, but this title refers to the promise. I'm sorry, now as soon as I said that, all I could think of is Father Abraham had many sons in that song that he was doing. Now David had many sons, but this, this title referred to the promise that a son of David will reign on the throne. Now this promise is found in 2 Samuel, and I'm going to just read it real quickly. Where the Lord declares to David that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die... I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He says, you will have a kingdom that will outlive you. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the kingdom of his throne or the throne of his kingdom forever. Eternal. Now we know that this is Solomon came after. He built a house for God. God established his throne, but we know that it did not last forever. So there's something greater, a son of David. That's who the Messiah was. They were looking for someone who would come from the throne room of David, from David's line, who would be established that kingdom forever. Hundreds of years later, the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet would declare here on the monitor, read with me silently, please. There she came forth from a stump of Jesse. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And as many of you know, Jesse, the stump of Jesse, that was the father of David. But also that same prophet would also declare, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. A special portion of scripture that we all know during the Christmas time. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says of him, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So if you're a first century Jew, this is who you are looking for. You are living under the cruel and harsh rule of a Roman Empire for years under others. And you're yearning for that day when your land will be yours once again. Very similar to the Jews today, how they feel. They're still looking for that Messiah. 
Of course, we are here this morning to declare that that passage in Isaiah refers to Jesus the Christ, the son of David. Yet Matthew is not finished. For he declares that Jesus is not only the one who will rescue, not only is he the one who is the anointed one, the son of David, the rightful rule, but he's also, he says, the son of Abraham. Now that goes even further, and, and Dustin shared a little bit about that this morning. He's the son of Abraham. Abraham, as most of us are aware, is the father of the Hebrew children. His son Jacob will become the father of what we now know as the Israels, the nation of Israel. And it was Abraham that was called out of his homeland to follow God. In doing so, God promised him in Genesis chapter 12, go from your country, Abram, and your, and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Leave everything, abandon everything, your heritage, your inheritance, all that you know and follow me. He says, if you do so, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. But here's what's an important part of this passage for you and I. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This promise is repeated in Genesis chapter 22. That famous portion of scripture where God tells Abraham to take up Isaac and sacrifice him. And Abraham in obedience goes to do so. But at the last moment, God uh, stops and gives him a substitute. As he obeys God in offering his son Isaac, it says that the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld you or your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as in the stars of the heaven and as the sands that is in the seashore. And you can walk on, this, on the beach and you see the sand and you let it wrinkle through or go through your fingers. Imagine having a promise that your offspring would be as numerous as the sand. Your offspring, he says, shall possess the gates of his enemy. They shall be victorious. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth once again be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The apostle Paul would write centuries later that after that original promise to Abraham and after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Paul would write that Jesus actually fulfills that promise. For he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, but it did not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And Paul says, and your offspring is Christ. In just one short sentence, Matthew declares that Jesus comes from a very prominent and highly valued family. Matthew is declaring that Jesus is the anointed one of God who comes to rescue his people from their sins through his righteous rule on the throne of David and will bless not only the Hebrew children, but also the whole world. But that's not all we find. Now that's a wonderful start to who Jesus is. And you can imagine those who are listening as disciples and other believers of Christ are spreading out throughout the, throughout the Roman Empire and they're hearing these stories for the first time. You could probably sense a spark of hope start to rise in them. A desire that this is it. This is finally it. In one sentence, he renews the hope. But then Matthew goes on to give the rest of the genealogy. Now, sometimes we read those many times, we kind of skip through them, whatever it may be. 
But as we continue through that genealogy of Jesus, you and I are going to find good, faithful men that served God and others that were very wicked and evil. We're going to find attentive fathers that raised their children to honor God. And we're going to find other fathers who failed to do so. We find kings that honor God by ruling righteously and justly. And we find other kings that were just a disgrace, a disgrace ruling in wickedness. You read of the patriarchs of the Hebrew children, such as Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. We see great kings like Solomon, Solomon and Asa and Jotham and Hezekiah and Josiah. But yet we also read of wicked kings like Rehoboam and Joram and Ahaz and Manasseh and Ammon. And then we find men that are strong and faithful like Boaz and Obed and Jesse. They weren't kings and great rulers. They were just faithful men attending to their households and raising up good godly men and women. But there are also those whose characters and exploits are lost in time and they're not recorded other than what we find in genealogy. They're just ordinary men. But what's most interesting in Matthew's record of Jesus' genealogy is that it includes four women, three who are Gentile and one who was married to a Gentile and would therefore be considered a Gentile woman. Now, it was unusual for women to be named in genealogies, but Matthew names four of them. You might be, you might be there in your Bible, Matthew chapter 1. We're not going to look at all the names, but you'll see them as we just kind of go through. The first one you're going to see is one named Tamar. Now, she was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was the son of Jacob. Judah, or, sorry, but Tamar pretended to be a prostitute after the death of her husband so that she may be able to sleep with her father-in-law so that she could have children. Dustin went over that Levite marriage in, the, in those days. If you, if you had died before having children, your, your, your sons would have, or the, your, your brother-in-laws would, would then marry you. Well, in this case, both of them failed to do so. God killed one of them. So she said, well, Judah, you're my father-in-law, but you got to give me children. And he reneged on that promise. So she pretended to be a prostitute. And she slept with her father-in-law. She had twin sons. You see their names in the genealogy, Perez and Zerah. Perez would be the one that Jesus would come from. He was Tamara's offspring. He was the product of incest, harlotry, and fornication and deception. And it would be, but he would be immortalized forever as in the lineage of Jesus. Rahab, again, was a Gentile prostitute who hid the Israelite spies in Jericho. And in the process, though, she saved her whole family from the destruction of Jericho's great wall and the attack by Joshua. She would later marry one of the Israelite men. Ruth, again, was a Moabite woman who followed Naomi, who she lost her husband, and she followed Naomi, her mother-in-law, to Israel after her husband's death, and she wound up marrying an Israel man named Boaz. A great story in the book of Ruth. Ruth was from the tribe of the people who were the product of incest. Their very existence, the Moabs, were actually repugnant to the Jewish people. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, it's one of the laws that govern worship in Israel says, No Ammonite, which was the brother of Moab, or Moabite, shall enter the assembly of God. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. They could not go to temple worship or to the tabernacle. But yet, in the grace and providence of God, we see that he includes her in the promise of a Messiah, not people you and I would choose to put down. Bathsheba, the fourth one, was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
She committed adultery with David, leading God to judge both David and the people of Israel. After losing their son in infancy, she later gave birth to Solomon, who would build the temple of God and is known for his great wisdom. But yet, even though women are not included in genealogies normally, Matthew includes, and you have to wonder why. And if you're going to include women, why wouldn't you include women of great repute or those that make great influence or, or advances? But yet, he gives Gentile women who are not the cream of the crop that you and I would choose. But each of these women is an object lesson about the workings of divine grace. For you see, we see the promise of God's coming, but you also see God's providence as he works through to create, or creates to that point of the incarnation. Though they are marginalized, sexualized, and discarded by those around, him, around them, their suffering was integral to the plan of God to send a redeemer. God's grace is even shown in his genealogy, in his lineage. What do you and I learn from this genealogy? One, we learn that God became flesh. And that's what Matthew is showing them. He is showing that Jesus is flesh. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, and you'll see this on the monitor, that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he did not think that I have to grasp equality with God. I am God. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Matthew is showing that the son of God actually became flesh and dwelt among us. That is what you and I celebrate on Christmas, the incarnation. Matthew would write in chapter 1, if you're still there, in verse 22, he said, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Just as God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle that we studied these past 13 weeks in the Exodus, and even as God's, temp or God's glory dwelt in the temple for those, those many years, now he comes and he dwells now, not in a glory of a cloud or a fire or even of a bush, but in flesh. He's going to walk among us and touch us, eat with us, laugh with us, cry with us. He's going to walk in the same footsteps, even uh, approaching the same type of temptations, the scripture says, as you and I. And becoming flesh, Jesus was obedient to the Father. By earning our righteousness, and though he was out sin, without sin, he became our substitute. Just as the ram became the substitute for Isaac, Jesus becomes a substitute for you and I. And he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. The Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians that for Jesus, Jesus for our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God says, you must be perfect as I am perfect to be with me, for I am holy. It even says, you must be holy as I am holy. But as we see, who one of us can be holy? None. For we know that we are guilty. When he set up the law, it is to show that not that we could be perfect, that we could obey it all, we find that we cannot. Our catechism teaches us that we could not attain to the law. 
but it says it's to show our sin. However, Jesus was able to do what God required and what we could not. See, Jesus was perfect when I could not. Jesus is holy as I cannot. He obeyed his parents perfectly. He kept the Sabbath perfectly. He honored God perfectly. He did not covet. He did not sin. By becoming flesh and in the weakness of it, he did what we could not do. That's what the writers of Hebrews would declare. Again, look on the monitor as we look at chapter 5 of Hebrews. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Speaking of God. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What was his suffering? Dwelling among us. Walking with us. Feeling the pain, the hunger, the temptation, the burdens that you and I face. Not only that, but also through the, 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 the carrying of the cross and the cross itself. And being made, what? Perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. God became flesh to do what I could not do. In becoming flesh, God comes and he dwells among his people much more than they ever expected, speaking of the Jewish people. They were just wanting a king. They were wanting a warrior who would raise up arms and destroy the Roman Empire. And set up that king in Jerusalem once again. Even today, that is what they are looking for. They were not looking for God to become flesh. Hence why they had a struggle in understanding and accepting Jesus. But Jesus says, I'm giving you something so much more. So that he could once again rescue them from a greater enemy than Pharaoh in Egypt. And here's the same thing. You and I need the same thing that the Israelites in the first century needed. You and I needed to be rescued from the curse of sin and death. And let me tell you, you and I can do all the good things that we try to do, all the righteousness. We can go to church, we can tithe, we can do all the things and the requirements that people ask of us, but yet in the end, it does not overcome the curse of sin and death. It doesn't. You still fall short. Only one has been able to accomplish that. His name is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I'll add, as John would say, the son of God. So not only did God become flesh, that's what the genealogy shows us. But number two, it also shows us that God is faithful in keeping his promises. He breaks the cycle of sin. As you saw in the children's play, Jesus' birth was an important part of God's plan to redeem his children from the uh, curse of sin and death. And since the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve, men and women of God have been looking forward to that great promise that the Messiah would bruise his head, speaking of Satan. This yearning is reflected in the wonderful Christmas hymn, O Holy Night where he says, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the seer Savior's birth, but it's that next line that gets us, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Pining for what? A hope that thrills a weary soul. 
The Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 8, as you look in the monitor once again, that Jesus is the promise of God in the flesh. For God has done what the law, as I spoke before, weakened by the flesh could not do. By sinning his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So everything that you and I do in the flesh, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. It is not acceptable. Even in our charity, it is tainted by selfishness and, and sinful desires and passions. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So let me share with you, if your desire here is to do good works, to make it to heaven, it says here it is futile. It will not happen. But he goes on in verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is actually hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, even in its works of charity. Indeed, it cannot. Those, he says in verse 8, who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is the state that you and I are born into. That's the default. And it's, there's no hack in getting that right, speaking in computer terms. You need something from outside to come in and save us. So God is faithful in his promise because he says, I am going to take care of this. This passage describes our futility in pleasing God. Like Adam and Eve, we find ourselves naked before God, hiding in the bushes to avoid him. Yet God in his mercy promises to reconcile us to himself. Now take your Bibles if you would and turn it with me to 1 Timothy. For those of you who have your Bible. 1 Timothy, it's in the New Testament. Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, oh wait, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, then Colossians. So yes, you got it. Look at your index. There's a table of contents, 1 Timothy, chapter 1. This mercy is wonderfully depicted in the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who writes in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly, listen, God has done a wonderful thing in life, but look at, here's what I was formerly. A blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent. Now this is the same man who said, but listen, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was zealous for the law. In the flesh, I have most to boast. Much to boast. But he says here, I'm a blasphemer, I'm a persecutor, I'm an insolent, and I'm an oppo insolent opponent. Look what he says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in my unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here's where I want, you may want to underline this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might be displayed his perfect patience and example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what is your boast in this morning? Is it your works of charity? Is it your works of righteousness? Or is it in the very thing of who God is? It's not who your parents were. 
It's not what church you come from. It's not your background, but it's the fact that Christ came in the flesh to fulfill the promise that God made, that he would make right what went wrong. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he would cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I would say to you this morning, his answer is found in the birth of Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. The third thing we find from this genealogy in Matthew is that God grants us his grace by making us one people. Now this was important. I think someone asked in our Sunday school, we went through the genealogy of Matthew and Luke and the discrepancies there, the, 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 the contradictions many will struggle with. And I'll refer you to Dustin to find out that answer. But the question was, would they keep those genealogies? What was the importance of it? But to a Jew, it was very important. For one, that was how they determined their land. Remember, they were given land back in Joshua. This land belongs to this family, and this family, it belongs here. And every 7 to 50 years, that land would go back. So they would keep a genealogy, very whether it was written down or an oral type of way. There was a way in which genealogy was very important. It told you what tribe you belonged to, what family you belonged to, and what land was yours. Now, some of that fell into dis, uh, you know, disregard as the years went by and they were uh, uh, overthrown several times. But they still kept those records even when they were in captivity. But for the throne room of, of a king, for David, they would very much keep those very, very clear. And so this genealogy, to be a Jew, your genealogy was very important. It set you up. You were a Jew. You were one of God's children. And so there was many times this, this line that says, I'm a Jew and you're not. You're a pagan. You're a dog. You're a Gentile. You're a Greek. These were all terms that just referred to a humanity that was not a Jew. But God grants us his grace by making us one people. As you look in that genealogy, because it had great Jews, but it also had Gentiles. It not only had great men, but it also had great women. It not only had great men, but also people who were not as good and faithful. The genealogy demonstrates God's faithfulness by coming in the flesh so that he may rescue sinners. By granting salvation to sinners, God also broke down the barriers of male and female, Jews and Gentiles, and so on. The promise to Abraham that his children would be a blessing to the nations is fulfilled in the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Paul would write this in Ephesians. This is a passage. Please listen. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision. So he said now, remember you guys were once regarded uh, not very highly. We, the Jews, are of the circumcision. You're the uncircumcised dogs, the pagans, which is made by fleshly hands. He says, remember that at one time you were actually separated from Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants that God gave us as God's people. The Abraham covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant having no hope, and you were without God in this world because God was, we were God's special people. But now, he says, in Christ, you who were once far off have now been brought near. Well, how have we been brought near? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both Jew and Gentile. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And again, he writes how Jesus' incarnation was a mystery. That the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and members of the same body. And they were partakers of the promise in the anointed one, the Messiah Christ, Jesus through the gospel. In other words, just like the Gentile women's, or women who were included in the lineage of Jesus and reaped the blessings of Abraham, so do you and I. You and I do not have to convert to Judaism or burden ourselves with the rituals of trying to keep all the laws, but just by embracing the works of Jesus Christ. Now, many times people skip the genealogies as they find them in Scripture where they read through them quickly, and I'm not immune to that, I understand. However, in them, you and I find mercy and grace of God as he works through human history to accomplish his purposes. You see, we find that he works through great people with extraordinary faith, but he also works through ordinary people. He is served by faithful, obedient servants, but he also subjugates the evil devices of the wicked to accomplish his purpose. Even the wicked kings and the wicked men could not derail God's plan and purpose and providence in sending Christ, even as they were in his line. He does all this so that he might rescue sinners and adopt them as his own children, ready to lavish his rich mercy and his blessings upon them. John MacArthur, pastor up in the Santa Clarita, he reminds us Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. He himself said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He came to live among sinful men and he experienced what you and I experienced. He was tempted in every way that you and I were tempted, yet he was completely without sin. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he took upon himself the punishment of our sins. That which was rightly due to us, Christ said, I volunteer. That's the grace of God. R.C. Sproul just passed away past week. He's a great Bible teacher. And I'm not going to get this right, but you know, people always ask, why do good people, or why do ba uh, bad things always happen to good people? You've heard that. Uh, Billy Graham wrote a famous book. Why do bad things happen to good people? R.C. Sproul's uh, uh, answer to that is, uh, there was only one good person that had something bad happen to him and he volunteered for it. Speaking of Jesus. That's on the side. You didn't have to pay for that. But how devastating this genealogy is when we see it for what, it, what God intended it to be. For it strikes a blow in the face of legalism, self-righteousness, and human religious religion. Those Pharisees and even Paul himself who could look down his lineage and say, look at me, look at how great my family was. Look at all my training. Look at who I was. Paul says in the end, it's all rubbish. He said it's all dung. It's not worth anything. I'd, I'd give all of that to gain Christ. And in Jesus' genealogy, you see that. It underscores the truth that Jesus identified with Tamar, with Ruth, with 
Bathsheba and with those that even sin by taking upon himself their sin. Now you may skip the genealogy when you read the Christmas story aloud, but don't overlook, don't overlook its message of grace, John MacArthur writes, which after all is the heart of the Christmas story. God in his mercy doing for sinners what they cannot do for themselves. That's why he came to save, to rescue his people from their sins. Let me close it with this. This is what God is calling us to do today. First, God wants you to understand something here. And I want you to grab this. God wants you to understand that he is sovereign over all things, including who gives birth to whom and works through his providence to accomplish his purpose salvation. He had a plan from the beginning, from the first rebellion of our first parents. He knew exactly what he was going to do and he ordained each and every one of those people through their goodness and through their evilness, through their wickedness, through their obedience. God says, I'm still going to work through them. So no matter who your family is, no matter what your background, no matter the pain you might have suffered, understand this, that God had a purpose in your suffering. God had a purpose who your mother and father are, who your ancestors were, who your children will be. God is working through that. Understand that. Secondly, God wants you to believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. We see that. And he was accepted uh, as our perfect substitute who was willing to die for us that you and I may live. And he lived a perfect life to obtain the righteousness needed to stand before the holy God. That's what you need to understand. Not the fact that, hey, if I, if I do good works, and if I do these sacraments, if I do these, all these religious requirements, then these things will get me to heaven. For we find in scripture it does not. This is a righteousness that you and I cannot attain on our own. But God wants you to desire something so much more. He wants you to desire reconciliation with him above all things. And see, here's where the Pharisees and many of the Israelites failed. For they desired the gifts of God more than they desired God himself. They wanted a ruler to come, kick out the Romans and set up a kingdom and put the Jews on top. But when Jesus died, that ended that. They weren't looking for the suffering servant of Isaiah. They ignore that portion of scripture, even to today, to their detriment. So what do you desire? Are you desiring just the goodness and the benefits of God, or do you desire God himself? He wants you to desire his beauty, his love, and his promises. And here's where I want to get right down to brass tacks. Here's what God wants for you this morning. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will work in your heart and you will not lead today until you have responded to this call. For this is so important. Eternity waits for your answer on this. For God wants you to repent of your dead works, recognizing that all your works of charity and your righteousness of your own self is dead. It will not get you anywhere. But recognize that you can never please God on your own. Please recognize that. Accept that this morning. He wants you then to trust that he has accepted the obedience and the sacrifice on Jesus on our behalf. That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross does all that is needed that God required. 
And that if you and I trust in that, that God will accept us and he'll call us to, us, to himself. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the name and the works of Christ. All that it means. He then wants you to follow him by living in obedience to his word. Not the fact that once you and I accept Christ that we'll live it perfectly. We won't. That's why confession and repentance is part and parcel of the Christian life. But he wants you to commit to that. So as we come to the end of our message, what's your response? Maybe some of you need to repent of dead works and turn and trust Christ. Some of you, maybe it's the, a recommitment to live what God has done in the flesh. For he has made that possible for us. And then for some of us, as we'll see next week, maybe the next step then is just continue to look for the hope of his returning. For he will come once again. There he had bowed and every eye closed. As the worship team comes up, I just want to finish I ask you to pause for a moment to consider the words given today, the exhortations. Would you pray and ask God, how should I respond to the Holy Spirit? Would you take a moment and do so this morning? Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word. Even the words of the genealogy of Matthew, something that many of us just go through very, very quickly. It's tough and difficult to pronounce the names, so we just kind of go through them without much thought. But Lord, let us consider the promises in the Christmas story that you're going to send a rescuer to deliver us from our sins. Lord, that we see the providence of you working through individual lives and through the pages of history. And then, Father, the purpose of the Christmas story for Christ to accomplish what we could not. Make that anew. Help us to respond. I pray that if there's any here that wants to repent and, and turn to you, Lord, that they can come to me or Dustin, Landon, then we'll be here at the end and they can find out how they truly can have salvation. And they could walk in obedience. Strike our hearts for those of us who are struggling and fighting with our sin. Give us your grace to continue to fight it. And Lord, that you may be glorified. We thank you for this. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.